So, how often do you think about architecture? Never. Um, I honestly don't think about architecture that much. All the time. It can make you happy, and it can make you sad, and you don't even know. It's just under the surface. I only think about it if I'm thinking a building is really ugly or really nice. Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that uncovers the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and our day-to-day lives. I'm Chantel, a young architectural designer and recent Master's of Architecture graduate. I'm Brian, uh, who met Chantel doing the exact same thing. During our graduate studies, our individual theses kind of explored the ways that architecture impacts our unseen but very present social forces that affect our interactions and relationships with other people. Yeah, we're interested in the ways that the things we build impact how we talk to other people or or see other people or, or even just spend time together. Um, and during our, our graduate year, uh, we would talk to, to kind of non-architects, uh, regular people about what we were studying. Uh, and we had some really amazing conversations. Yeah, like one of my favorite things was that I always brought up to Brian was just that I would talk to somebody and then I would be like, oh, this is what my thesis is about. This is what I'm studying. And then they would leave and they would come back like two weeks later and they were like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm looking at space entirely different now. Which is, I think, really amazing. And uh, people feel like maybe they can't relate to architecture. But what we're interested in doing with this show and what our thesis really revealed is that people, once you kind of open their eyes, they can see that it's really important. Because I work in a place where architecture is a key component to how people function and operate in our space. My other job is I paint murals. I think it's critical that where you feel at peace, you need to be surrounded by those kinds of, uh, that atmosphere. Yeah, so we went around to our friends and the public and just different people and approached them about what architecture means to them, how they see it, how they describe it, just to get some more non-architectural input and getting those really raw reactions as to how do you describe the space. Uh, it feels very homey, um, warm, green, plush. My office right now, I sit right next to this gigantic window and the ceilings are really high and I feel like I have just like a ton of space. If I liked my job more, I would fill it with plants. I feel better in a place where there's like the sky coming in. But I notice good architecture when I see it. So what do you call good architecture? Interesting pieces, I'm not sure. I feel like nowadays, a lot of homes, they're just mass produced. So when you see something that's different, Mm -hmm. it stands out. It's unique in its own way. People are really, they're, they're very tuned in to what's around them. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm like, you've lived in architecture your whole life. Most people were born in a building. Um, so in some way, you've been surrounded by it all the time. So over the course of this season, we're really just trying to figure out different ways to initialize these discussions with people. So just different ways to talk about it. And over the season arc, we're going from a really small scale to a really big one. Yeah, I mean, this topic on a whole is is kind of gigantic. You could people spend their whole lives studying architecture and and people. So we're we're focusing on, like Chantel said, looking at scale. And when we say scale, we're not talking about like the thing in your bathroom. That you weigh yourself on. <laughs> we're, like... we're talking about probably what most people would call size. So we're going to start with one square foot and we'll, we'll move up through buildings, through neighborhoods, and, and eventually through whole cities. And these scales go through different versions of physical scale, like how big 
a box is in comparison to a door, in comparison to a room, and then, like Brian was saying, a city and a town. And then there's also more theoretical things, like your mind, how you see things, how you feel because of how close you are to someone else, and how time affects things, and how stories are being told on walls, and how that can affect social hierarchies, and all these different implications of how just design can really, really affect seen and unseen aspects of our lives. And we like to move around between these scales and kind of use them as a framing device because it really does permeate uh, design and architecture in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, designers don't think about buildings and cities on one scale and people don't experience them in, in one scale either. Uh, they move around, they, they jump around, uh, and there's lots of interconnected ideas and emotions and thoughts uh, between something, say, at the size of your bedroom versus something at the size of a whole city or a, a whole country. So I mentioned to you once, but a thing that I want to bring up again is um, Alan Watts and how I read a lot of his philosophies and how in one of the books, it's actually called The Book. Um, That's a good title. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, He talks a lot about solids and space and how the idea of a physical thing being just as important as the space between two physical things. So he describes it as solids and spaces go together as inseparably as insides and outsides. Space is the relationship between bodies, and without it, there can be neither energy nor motion. And the idea is sort of that you can't understand how one thing is or if it's moving at all unless you have it. Yeah, you need need a reference. Yeah, and so this is why space is the relationship between bodies. So if you were to picture one ball kind of in a void, you have no idea really if the ball is moving or if it's not moving or how big it is until you start putting other things around it. And when you add two balls, you kind of have a line. It's not until a fourth ball is added that you kind of have like a third dimension. And so it's all really the only way that we understand space and how big we are in it or how big anything is or how fast to move or whatnot is because of how all these different things are relating to one another. We can look at what's around us and use what we know and kind of build a picture of, of the of everything around us. Yeah, and so I think it, it was such a cool way to understand scale in my head, like while I was reading the book, and I was like, oh, totally fits into what we're talking about. I think we should be really clear that while both Chantel and I are trained as architects, um, and we're talking a lot about architecture, uh, we do not want to talk to only other architects, and we don't want the people listening to only be other architects. Mm. Uh, there's a ton of value in talking to people without a design background who, like we were talking about earlier, feel like they have no sense of what architecture is or how to talk about it. We really want those insights and and we want to have a conversation that's interesting to those people. Yeah, because in reality, what it is at the end of the day is something that controls all of us and affects all of us in the way that we navigate our lives together is through the built environment. And so I feel like the goal of so many of our conversations is just to keep asking questions and to keep figuring out different ways to talk about and think about how the space around us is affecting us. And that seems to be really important and intriguing to a lot of people who aren't just architects, but what winds up happening, especially in school, and I think often in anyone's career, is you just wind up talking and surrounding yourself with the same people. Yeah. I like there's this kind of truism that uh, people call architecture the one art you can't escape, which I really love. (laughs) Uh, And I think (laughs) is how we think about it a lot. Uh, and we hope that a lot of other people do because it 
it does kind of force you to reckon with it, but we think that reckoning can be really interesting and, and, and not dry and boring and technical, but really profound. Yeah. And so we actually put out a survey along with asking a lot of people about kind of their thoughts around architecture. And what we got back was really interesting because a lot of people do have this desire to care about architecture. And a lot of people who didn't even say that they do care about architecture, said that they sort of do and that they really want to learn about it, but they want to learn about it if it was presented in an understandable way. So that was a big inspiration too, because I really do think that so many people want to know, yeah. but there's just not a lot of information that explains it in a way that isn't overwhelmingly intimidating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the two, the two responses that I thought were really super revealing was that um, we asked people if they had any memories associated with buildings, and over 80% said yes. And we asked people if they thought that uh, the way spaces uh, were designed impacted their lives, and Do again, more than 80% said yes. Do you your life at all? 100%. I mean, I, like, very base level, we need architecture to just, like, feel safe and feel warm and comforted. Just you like grow houses. up in the same place, so you see... Everything gets smaller around you? Um, okay, so when you first asked the question, I immediately thought of my grandparents' house in Florida for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. It always seemed like it, like it reminds me of being like on vacation, but also felt like home because it was my grandparents' house. I think good memories take a stronger hold, probably because we want them to. My grandma, who I spent a lot of time with, in her kitchen, which was really small. In fact, it couldn't even fit a refrigerator in a kitchen, so her refrigerator was in, like, the parlor. There was, like, a rectangular table, but the table was, like, connected to the wall on one of the long sides. So if you were in there, though, there was a window, and you could look outside, and it always smelled good. It's encouraging, and and I, I hope that uh, the people listening feel similarly and can kind of tap into a... Uh, a, a shared desire to, to look at those questions. Yeah, and I think that our goal is that at the end of every episode, whoever it is that is listening feels inspired to kind of have a bunch of new questions as to how they're going to look at space from now on, and then comes back intrigued enough to come back and develop new questions with us. Not every episode will be, actually the vast majority will not be Chantel and I just rambling on. <laughs> uh, we're going to have a ton of interesting conversations with a ton of people, uh, so, so expect that. So come on! Anyway, with that out of the way, uh, let's start with our smallest scale for the season, one square foot. Uh, one square foot is quite literally the size of your head, the size of your brain, and we're interested in that because your brain controls your perception of the space around you. Uh, it's kind of the key to all this. Um, as we were talking about earlier, we we're really interested in all these the ways that design and the built environment and, and the objects and people inside them are interconnected uh, and your brain is kind of the the thing that processes and understands and controls your reactions to those things um, to kind of get us started i want to just have a uh, say a brief quote from this guy michel foucault who's this kind of super artsy French philosopher who writes all sorts of things. But what we like from him, yeah, very fancy. Uh, what we like from him is uh, this quote where he says, the space in which we live is a heterogeneous space. In other words, we do not live in a kind of void, much like uh, our good friend Alan Watts. There's no, there's, 
we're never alone. Everything's all always tied together. There's always like a ripple effect, like the rock and the ocean thing. And another metaphor that I've always thought of when I think about like connections is how a blanket is only made up of a bunch of strings. And so the way I think about like communities and neighborhoods and just my part in everything, just as much as architecture is a part with our mind and our minds and architecture, is how we're all one string in a greater blanket. So it's like you put, you can't move the blanket without pulling one string. You can't pull one string without moving the entire blanket. So I think it's this really awesome metaphor to how like interplay, you know? Yeah, I would say, I mean, one way to think about this is uh, architecture influences our perception of space and almost more importantly of others in space in a ton of different interconnected ways, some of which are super obvious and some are not. And we're going to be trying to reveal the the different ways that that happens. And again, all of that happens really inside your brain, inside that one square foot. The first topic is going to be about a box of light. And then we're going to talk about a gigantic door and then an old woman's house to give some structure. So the box of light is actually this experience in a museum that Brian and I both went to. Yeah, it's it's this really amazing uh, work by a super well-known American artist, James Terrell, uh, he's a little older now. He was born in 1943, but still alive and doing a ton of work. And he works, uh, you know, some artists work with paint, some might work with bronze or whatever. He works with light, light and space. Uh, his his works seek to kind of dissolve space through the way he uses light, uh, which is, uh, I know it sounds really strange, but totally works. Yeah, it's like immersive light installations. It's like full body. You go in and he detaches your mind. Like he totally warps that sense of scale. And the first one, this box of light is similar to what I was saying about Alan Watts. Like, because whenever I talk about those balls in, in space, I'm always talking about, he's always like, picture a ball kind of in a void without anything else around it. And James Strell's installation literally created that. It was he, with a simple curving of the floor and the ceiling, and this really bright light somehow emitted against one really big wall. If you were in there with somebody else and someone stood on one side of the room and you were standing on the other side of the room, what the effect that it made is you had no understanding of the space anymore. Like you didn't know where the space started and ended, where the walls were, where the floor was, where the ceiling was. And this person that you were with is standing on the opposite side of the room and it basically looks like they're floating in a void. Yeah, it's really wild. You, you kind of walk into a little like vestibule and you can sort of peek uh, into people experiencing the installation but you climb a few stairs and as Chantel said you walk into this box of light the the there's no difference your eye can perceive between the floor and the walls the wall and the ceiling and then the the ceiling and the floor they all are just bathed in this uniform uh, bath of, of color that changes and gradiates between things and suddenly, like like Shanta was saying, that the void, Alan wants a void between space, is just filled with color and light. Yeah. I read somewhere once that you like feel a space before you see a space. Like you can feel how close the walls are around you. And it's bizarre because you kind of can feel that as you walk into this insulation. But then because of what you're seeing, your mind gets super confused because you're like, I feel like I understand it, but I, my, I can't see my visual perception of it totally doesn't match that. Yeah, the the installation exists almost equally inside your your kind of optic nerves and your brain yeah. as it does all around you because it's just totally playing with that that unconscious uh you know, need to, to understand and, and like you said, feel the space around you. Yeah. And so what was interesting is he had this other installation um right below that and 
it was the total opposite. Like you had to walk down this hallway and you followed, they had you follow the wall. There was like a handrail. And as you walked down this curved corridor, it led you into this darker and darker and darker and darker space. And I really don't, the only reason why you understand the shape of it is because there was a tiny, tiny floor plan on the outside wall. And when you looked at it, you know that you were kind of entering a square, but that was it. And there's directions to kind of, there's a bench on the right and there's a bench on the left and you and one other person kind of sit on those benches. But it was so incredibly, incredibly dark that you, again, couldn't understand anything. You could almost feel your eyes struggling to make sense of the space. And right. it was so surreal because you, you just couldn't. You were there for so long. I, I think you stay in there for 15 minutes unless you choose to leave before. Yeah, your brain, again, just really tries to, to build this world around you, build this room around you. And because now there's no light, there's a little, little, little faint light. Mm-hmm. You really, you can't, but your brain tries. So again, it, it, it almost exists equally inside your head as your head tries to, to be like, what is going on? Yeah, but so because of the environment he provides, there's nothing there. Yeah, it's crazy. Every single time I think about it, the way that I describe it to people, like you just said, is always just you are forced to just create what you think is there. And it winds up existing more in your head almost than it does physically. It's bizarre. Terrell's work is cool because it short circuits your brain into misunderstanding space around you. It floods it with light or it takes it all away. Uh, a building that does has a similar effect, but in a much more kind of comprehensible and simple way, really, uh, is, a, is a work by Alvaro Siza. He's this really amazing Portuguese architect. Uh, it's the Santa Maria Church. Which Brian actually got to go to together yeah which is super amazing um it's a it's actually a very simple church white walls uh pews kind of the standard proportions in of you know a cross shape and plan that you would expect but the really amazing thing is that the door that you enter is about as wide as a normal double door maybe a little bigger uh but it's like 30 feet tall it's (laughs) huge i have this really amazing photo of you that i'm going to absolutely post on our instagram (laughs) of you just like reaching your arms really high up in the air and then the door is still way significantly taller than like it's like three times your size if not even more than that yeah you go to open it and the door handle is just at a normal door handle height and you grab it and you look up and the door seemingly just towers above you And it was interesting because we went and these like little old women came out and they were going to give us a tour. And then they just basically, the door looks monstrous. So in your head, you're kind of comparing it also to something that would weigh a ton and would be really difficult yeah. to operate. These little old women just like click it open and kind of push it. And I was just like, okay. Yeah, your brain has this idea of like, I know what a door is. And this is how, if I can see a door, I can see how big the rest yeah, of the space is. I know is. how doors work. <laughs> but he totally <laughs> messes with it by just yeah. stretching this door super, super tall. Um, of course, for the, the church, it relates to all these ideas about um, kind of the presence of God and, and, and the feeling of heaven and all that. But, you know, just a super visceral sense, it really messes with your brain. Yeah, and I think it, it's, again, one of those uses of how everyone's simple understanding of a door, just slightly warping that, really brings in this astronomical difference of understanding, like, what the space is for. And I think that that's kind of where it is that people correlate that space to a space for God is because it's 
it's it's godlike. Like you're just like, oh, this is beyond my understanding because I don't know how I'm moving this door so much, and it's so grand, and it's it's almost like the use of I don't know. I feel like in a lot of other churches, like the use of really high ceilings and like arches and all that like that's not as commonly used in this i mean it is they exist there but i think the use of this door kind of is comparable to how a lot of other churches use these very very ornate incredible extravagant designs and he just uses a really big door and it almost accomplishes like the same exact feeling and uh, it's so powerful because again it draws upon that cultural reference that i think everyone at least in the western world if not in most of the world has about what a church should be just like you have an idea about what a door should be and it unconsciously i really think whether you you recognize it or not something that powerful and that distinct it, it impacts you. It impacts how you, you think about entering that space when, when that door just is huge in front of you. So if we were to move in to even the next thing that I described as being a house for a little old lady, <laughs> um, it would be the Rietveld Schroeder house in Amsterdam. I'm totally going to butcher that word, I feel like, but... You're going to butcher a lot of Dutch. <laughs> so the, the Schroeder house designed for uh, for Mrs. Schroeder by uh, Garrett Rietveld um, in Amsterdam. It happened at a time of uh, where the, a big kind of avant-garde art movement was Distil, which again, I'm saying wrong. It's S-T-I-J-L. Uh, Dutch is weird. Um, so to give you some idea, much like a Mondrian painting, say, it's all these kind of interlocking uh, colored planes, gray and red and yellow and blue. But what we're interested in, what's so amazing about the house, is it's designed specifically for Mrs. Schroeder, who is a very uh, short woman. So everything in the house matches her dimension. Yeah, because I think the whole idea was that her husband was going to be gone a lot of the time, so she was going to be alone and at home, and I know that she wanted to be able to lock the front door from upstairs in her bedroom. So there's this mechanism that's designed so that she can lock it from this way of moving these different little contraptions from her room, and it locks the door. And then also all of the panels for the top floor, it's so interesting. She has the ability to slide all these walls and turn the bedroom, all these individual bedrooms and bathrooms into a really big open kitchen and living room. Also, all of the counters are a little bit shorter so that she can reach the shelves, so that she can reach the sinks, so that she can open the windows without being strained. And so it's so interesting because it does feel different not being her probably being in that space because it's not drastically different that you would look at it and be like, oh, this space is crazy, but it feels just slightly off because there's this average standard in most homes as to, you know, how countertop is typically like 36 yeah. inches high and like all of this stuff. And so, and certain depth and, and when something is just warped a little bit, you can kind of feel the difference, but for one specific person who it is designed for, it makes a world of a difference. So for her, it was a perfectly designed home. Yeah. But, but for you, your brain, like you said, kind of looks at the shelf and you go, I know how high a shelf should be, and that's yeah. really short. Or uh, even, you know, some of the taller people we were with when we visited had to duck to get through the door, yeah. and, and the stairs are, are very small and slight. But all those things that your brain, especially in a domestic setting, kind of understands. But because this house was really amazingly designed for this one woman, uh, it, it warps that sense in a super slight way. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the impacts that really intentional design can have on how people feel when they're inhabiting a space, like how different the world would be if every single person's home was able, was designed in a way so it was like specifically keyed, every little mark and movement was 
designed for them and their particular needs because of their height and their standards and like what they needed, like no one would be reaching anymore. <laughs> Our arms wouldn't have to go up. Yeah. And then anytime you went to your friend's house, it would always be like, I don't know how this works. I can't, I can't open this door. <laughs> I can't reach the cereal. <laughs> I keep hitting my head. <laughs> And what I think is so interesting about so many of these different kinds of uses of the different architects and designers and artists brought into their designs and what they put out into the world was warping that sense of someone understanding something else differently. And what I think is really interesting is how design can really impact how one person can understand someone else in a space. And I think that has a really grand effect that a lot of people don't just pay attention to consciously, like every day in life as we're operating. I think we can think of, even though I think a lot of people admit that they don't think about it, most people think about how space affects them. And I think it's more rare to think about how space affects your relationship to somebody else and how you're interacting with somebody else. And in your thesis, I think that you approach that really well because of this whole unique use of mirrors that you brought into effect and how someone was seeing somebody differently and how that visual connection really altered how people felt yeah. someone else. Yeah, yeah. Ways. So I was, to make some sense of it, like I was obviously interested in these ideas that we've been talking about that we share uh, deeply. But as Chantal mentioned, I used mirrors as like a medium to explore them. And mirrors are super cool to me, uh, not because, not just because people like to look at themselves, which they <laughs> totally do, uh, and it's, it's really like useful. Easy, yeah, like, you can draw like people in. Because everyone's like, oh, my hair. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I was interested in building, like, installations that people could experience with mirrors because uh, mirrors use, like, projective and perspectival uh, understandings of the world to create... Uh, space inside themselves. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but if you think about when you look in a mirror, one way to think about the image that you see is that it's capturing the reflection and transporting it inside the mirror. So you could think that your image of, say, your face in the bathroom mirror is projected at an equal distance inside that mirror, and this the wall behind you is now the wall in front of you inside that mirror. Uh, it, it can kind of take a slice of the world and make it unreal, as I was calling it. It's weird because that unreal space, I think, reminds me of the whole James Trell thing, like when it was so dark that you started to just construct a space that wasn't necessarily true yeah. in your own head, and that's sort of what a mirror is doing, is it's creating a per an idea of a space. Yeah, and like you said, it's completely inside your head. It, it relies, it, it only exists for you through where you sit, how you stand, and, and the it thing moves. that you're seeing, too, is like particular to you like anybody else who is looking even if it's at the same mirror at the same reflections it's a totally different perception of it so it's a totally different and altered space so once you think about the fact that okay if you kind of accept that that like oh okay mirrors can can create space inside themselves now they get really funky when you put other people in in that mirror if say you're looking in a mirror but it's tilted 45 degrees away from you and now you're looking at the ceiling or now it's tilted the other way and you're looking at someone and they're standing at a right angle from you, but inside the mirror, they're right in front of you. Like, that's a really, it's a strange experience. It's, jarring. it's It's very jarring, but in a way that I was interested in because it grabs your attention. And now if, say, there's a mirror above you and there's someone on the other side of that wall, 
but because of the way the mirror is angled, you can see them, and and now that person is floating upside down above you. That you have a super different relationship with that person. Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the things too that it really altered was your expectation, like the idea that you everyone. I think mirrors along with architecture. It's like a lot of people don't think about it and what it means, and they don't go into these all deep and you know poetic yeah like meanings behind like the space inside of a mirror but it's strange because when someone looks at you know your installation they're like oh whatever but there's this mirror i'm gonna go look at the mirror and then immediately they're like oh that's not what i was expecting to see it's actually entirely warped and now i'm almost like mildly uncomfortable because i wasn't expecting to see that at all and it's it is bizarre yeah and it, it kind of causes people to stop and really try to think and understand what's happening which a lot of people almost can't at first. Yeah, I think, like you said, that that expectation is what kind of all these examples that we're talking about really play with. Mm-hmm. And that expectation's built inside your head. It's it's your cultural knowledge. It's your personal experience. But when it gets warped and suddenly that door is giant and the floor like doesn't exist or or you're you're kind of hunching to get through this door or you're sitting on a stool and you're looking at someone's face who you can't you can only see inside this mirror that expectation is is just totally kind of thrown out the window yeah. and provides space for new experience yeah. when you can kind of wipe away what you expect uh or it gets wiped away for you now you have to have a new reaction you have to have a new understanding and it's totally different and and I we think can be really powerful that that space mm. Mm, it's like both of us are very, throughout all of our graduate studies, both of us were just so intrigued at by the idea of designing something that would just make people stop and slow down and think about what's happening. That conscious participation is, I think, one of the things that we're really striving for, is people questioning what's around them, why it's affecting them in a way, like why it feels uncomfortable, why it feels good, why it feels different off was a little bit off all of those questions are really what's going to engage you more and more and more with your surrounding environment and at the end of the day the more you pay attention the more you'll realize that space does respond to you responds to us and the way that we interact and affect where we go during our day where we go on our lunch breaks why we're going into certain areas that's all like architecture responds to that we find that out it's even creepier now with our phones listening and telling everybody where we go <laughs> creepy <laughs> So with that, now that we've kind of filled your head with these weird ideas and strange thoughts and quotes from philosophers, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up uh, one square foot here. Uh, hopefully you'll be back next week. Yeah, we'll leave you wondering into like where the questions can go from here. So we really hope that you come back and that you keep asking and that maybe you look at space a little bit differently from now on. So we'll, we'll catch you uh, next Monday for, uh, for episode two, 10 Square Feet. What Build Us is brought to you by Ridiculously Crowded Subway Cars. Is everyone around you crippling your need for personal space while a random stranger blasts music that you don't want to hear? Does the whole place somehow smell like pollution and farts and you're expected to breathe it in your whole entire commute? Well, we all hate it. We all have to be back at it tomorrow because we, like, literally have to. Want to share your own spite with the city with us? Or help support the show in other ways? Maybe Maybe with money. (laughs) You can send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. Our Instagram, again, is coalesce.design. Our website is coalescedesign.org slash what builds us. 
where you can find images of all the work we talked about, uh, some readings, and a bunch of other good stuff. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Chantal Trombley and Brian Sanford. Our music is by Thorns, and you can find their music at thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. And lastly, uh, make sure to check every... Uh, <laughs> I know, I feel like... Yeah, one, one, yeah. <laughs> Um, be sure to check every Monday, uh, we'll be releasing the next episode. So keep, uh, you know, set that reminder in your phones and, <laughs> and make sure to check back. Uh, we're, we're starting your Mondays off great in your week with a bunch of information. So it's like you're going to school, but it's fun, but fun. and for your ears yes. and not your eyes. School for your ears. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week.